The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. All right, so everybody, appreciate those that are joining us for this hour with special guest Charles Payne. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his name. I've seen him in the media over the years, but this will be a really thoughtful conversation. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Charles Payne. Charles, I know a lot of people, again, have seen you over the years, and you've got a wonderful show that you do on Fox Business. But before any of that, talk about who you are, how you get involved in markets, and what do you find most challenging about communicating in a volatile environment. Wow. How far back do you need me to go? <laughs> Start from when you were a little child. Yes, exactly. Ironically, that's probably what I have to do to make the story work. You know, so, Michael, I grew up with the two childhoods. My first childhood was growing up on army bases around the world. My dad was in the, in the army. I was born in New York. Then we moved to Pittsburgh. Then we moved to Texas. Then we moved to Germany. We moved back to Pittsburgh. Then we moved to Japan. Back to Texas, Alabama, North Carolina, Virginia. We had a beautiful life. This is in the 60s and the early 70s. We were we were shielded from everything that was going on in society. We didn't really even know about racial issues. It was just, you know, sort of an idyllic oasis of a life. The last house we lived on in Fort Lee, Virginia, two-story house, just immaculate, never locked the door, played all day, came home, made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or two, went back outside and played all day. Came home one day, my mom said we're leaving. And so turns out my parents were getting divorced and my mom, me and my two younger brothers got on a bus from Fort Lee, Virginia to New York to Harlem, which at the time was the poorest and most dangerous neighborhood in America. So it was instant culture shock in so many different ways. It was just 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 mind boggling. And it was rough. It was beautiful and exciting in some ways. I'd never seen girls double Dutch before. I'd never seen I never felt that kind of energy or excitement. And the music, it was just coming from everywhere. It was electric, but it was also very dangerous. I'd never seen that, that kind of violence. And the poverty, we never dealt with poverty before. We stayed, all four of us stayed in a room with one of her childhood friends. And after a few months, we got our own apartment. But the first winter, we didn't have any heat or hot water. So I was sort of, because I was the oldest, thrust in a position, I, I, you know, I just felt like I had to help. I never thought about money a single day of my life until then. And so, you know, I would go out and do things. I would clean windshields at stoplights or red lights. And I would get paper towel and Windex. I would, you know, go store to store to shovel snow. Whatever I could do, I just hustled. Then I finally got a job in a bodega. And that was rough as hell. And then I just said to myself, I got to make some money. I got to help my mom. 
and I thought about Wall Street. I thought about the stock market. And I started getting the Wall Street Journal. And back then it was tough. If you ever look at a 1970s Wall Street Journal, it was mostly lines and lines and lines and lines and numbers and figures and lines. It took me a long time to even start to figure it out. But when I was 14 years old, I told my mom, I'm going to work on Wall Street. I bought my first mutual fund when I was 17. She had the co-sign for it. I bought my first stock and when I was 18 years old after I joined the U.S. Air Force. After the U.S. Air Force, I got a job at EF Hutton, which used to be one of the top six firms in the country. And then I had a chance to become a broker at a small brokerage firm. So I took that opportunity, even though it was 100% commission. And at the time, I had just gotten out of the Air Force. My daughter was one years old, still in diapers, almost one, still in diapers. I was making, I was working 100% commission. So it was a huge gamble. You know, long story short, it paid off, but there's been a whole lot of ups and downs. And, you know, what I tell people during market volatility is that the stock market changed my life. And it's changed a whole lot of people's lives. And, you know, the no, if it was easy, then it would be easy, right? I, a volatility for me can be your friend. It's also a time where you have to be honest with yourself as well. You know, I just did an hour and a half call with a lot of my subscribers, you know, going over some of the things that we've done over the last two months and some of the adjustments that I've had to make. But, you know, these are also the times when great fortunes are made. You just don't know it at the time. But if you make the right move and you look back a year or 10 years or five years or whatever, you say, wow, you know. We talk about them all the time. People always say, I wish I bought XYZ and held it for a few years. So, you know, I've, I've been handholding. I started my own business. My own business now is over 30 years old. So I've been doing this for a long time through a lot of ups and downs, through a lot of crashes, a lot of anxiety. There's The frustration for me, for me is, is, yeah, the communication part is something I pride myself in, the handholding. But it is tough. It is is tough. People have a lot of legitimate concerns and frustrations when it comes to the stock market. And, you know, listen, I consider myself to be a student of the game. I'm always trying to learn every single day as well. So it's 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 thrilling. I've been blessed to be able to do this. I've been blessed to have a, a fair amount of success at it. And I feel great when I try to help other people embrace it. You talk about um, cultural shock, and it's it's an incredible story to hear how you went from the U.S. to Germany, Japan, Texas. I'm curious. I know you were obviously a lot younger then, and I don't know how long you stayed in each various place. But was there anything that, that stuck out to you culturally about living in Japan, about living in Germany? Is there anything that you brought home to the U.S. in terms of your way of thinking about living, investing in general? Maybe not as much on investing. I was too young in Germany. But in Japan, I, I did. I had a lot of memories of Japan. I used to leave the base and I had some friends that would meet me. They were older than me, but they all had mandatory English classes. So I would help them with that and they would help me with Japanese. And I would leave the base. And I just I, I what was exciting for me is just the, the energy, the kinetic energy the all the kids who wore uniforms. I found I found their kids to be a lot more inquisitive, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I've always tried. I'm inquisitive. I think one of the beautiful things about being a living being is curiosity, you know, and, 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 and being inquisitive and always asking questions. I, and I always believe every answer should give you more questions. So, you know, I, I just kind of took, you know, that. And also they always talked about family. Family was important. The energy, for whatever reason, I, I love that energy, you know, the sort of kinetic energy. And just the commitment to knowledge, uh, uh, you know, these kids, they were older than me. They always asking me a lot of questions and they wanted to learn. And, you know, and I just felt like they weren't under any kind of pressure. They all wore uniforms. So it was about teasing anyone for wearing different, you know, not, not having the hippest clothes and those kind of things. So even though I was still even young in, in Japan, I was old enough to take some, old enough rather to take some things for, from them. But, you know, Michael, the greatest culture shock I ever had was going from Virginia 
on an army base to Harlem <laughs> in, in 1973. That 1973, 74, that was the that was the biggest, much bigger culture shock. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the, the violence and poverty. And obviously they're highly correlated, right, in terms of where somebody tends to live. And I want to bring that a little bit to the current environment, because one of the things that I myself have brought up in media appearances and my own writings is that we got to be real careful that inflation doesn't get uh, too entrenched because – you can have real poverty, meaning after inflation poverty, and that creates conditions for all kinds of nasty violence and uprisings and protests like we're seeing in other countries. I want you to talk about the current environment in terms of how this high inflation could really mess with the psyche of the American culture, right, in terms of the way that people interact and engage with each other. Well, you know, and, and, and I would just say layer on top of that, you know, just there's just there's so much more conversation these days about income inequality and and fairness and, and those sort of things. And and you're right. You know, if you look at the spike, for instance, in, in food prices in America, you know, this is the same level of, of increase that we saw that helped spark the Arab Spring. Right. So, you know, we're, we're, we're a richer nation and and we're not we're not there yet, but it doesn't mean we can never get there. You know, it's and then I think there's a couple of other unique aspects to what's happening. The constant money that's flown, that's been flowing in this country, you know, all the different programs, I just think are are, are detrimental, and I think they're backfiring in a sense that, you know, as a politician, you run for you run for office and you tout nominal numbers and nominal gains, so you can go and say, hey, you know what, GDP was four percent under my watch, unemployment was at this level, wages were at this level, you know, but in real life, GDP might have been negative. You know, real wages might have been negative and real misery is real. So the people have to live with real numbers, inflation adjusted. Politicians can run for office on nominal numbers and brag. And so I just think we've honestly, I think we have poured so much money into the system. And I and I do, you know, and, and I do also think we, we've gotten to a point where I just feel like we're a softer nation. And I, I just believe, you know, and, I, and I'm somewhat of a student of history. That it's probably par for the course, you know, just, you know, for as, at a certain period, all so-called great empires, you know, reach a certain tipping point. And it's in my and I think it all revolves around human nature. You know, you know, the, you know, the Romans at one point, you know, they hired mercenaries. They were, you know, military conquest. But at the end, they were hiring mercenaries. And, you know, the the, the British Empire, the sun never set, you know, set on the British Empire. But holding that together after a certain period of time became impossible. Uh, and of course, a lot of it was just like they were sending, you know. You had such vast responsibilities for so many people around the world, and you had people that didn't know what they were doing, administering those responsibilities. And so, you know, I, I feel like we might have reached a point in this country where everyone feels a certain type of entitlement. And by the way, it's, it's across the board. No matter what income bracket you're in, even the poorest Americans believe that they should, they should, as a right almost, have a better life than their poor mother and, and their poorer grandmother. Even if you lived in a trailer park, you know, where... Your grandmother, they had a radio. Your mom couldn't afford a TV. She finally got one in 1983, and you've got two. You know, one in the bedroom and, and, and one in, in, in the living room, even though you both, all three generations live in a double wide. So it's just sort of a, an expectation, but we're not doing what it takes. You know, before we did what it takes to achieve those things, now we kind of think we should get them. And so you, you put all of that into the same cauldron, and you start to stir that up. And it makes for a real combustible, real delicate, real dangerous uh, situation that, you know, we're, we see signs of it. We feel it. There's a certain amount of anxiety out there. 
And we're not going to be able to spend our way through this crisis. And in fact, the irony, of course, is the more we keep printing, the worse it becomes. And so I'm a rose-colored glasses kind of guy, but we're fighting against human nature, history, and right now moving in the wrong direction. So I love that point about the the softer nation. I had a space where I was basically making the connection with this idea that one of the reasons you can argue we have inflation is because you get canceled for calling out asinine policies that just increase debt loads ad infinitum. And I, I do believe myself that you can make an argument that the Fed brought out the worst of humanity, right? Because if if the Fed has always been there to cut off the tail risk and makes the remove the, the effect of shared pain, like during a great financial crisis, whatever it would be, people get used to the idea that things keep on, you don't have personal responsibility, right? The Fed is always going to come bail us out. The government's going to always come bail us out. And that creates real problems because people end up not wanting to push back or even having a platform to do so. Yeah, and 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 it also creates a huge problem for the Federal Reserve itself if they ever, you know, listen, we keep hearing about Jay Powell saying he's going to be, a, you know, Volcker-esque, you know, but the more you read and study Paul Volcker, even he paused initially. That's how we ended up with a double-dip recession. But more importantly, everyone's, you know, as much as people say that Jay Powell needs to be Paul Volcker and, it's, and really just make it as painful as possible for, for society – you know, the fact is, Arthur Burns, who was in charge of the Fed before him, said he wanted to do those things, but that Congress, you know, he was under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think it was August 27th, the Jackson Hole from 2020 is where I think Jay Powell sort of let the cat out the bag that he wanted to have a more, for lack of a better word, progressive like Fed, because the Fed has always used certain measuring sticks for, for pivots. And for them, one of the signs that the coast is clear is unemployment, right? This is, let's say, they're in an environment where they're being accommodative and they're trying to get the economy going, and the unemployment rate gets to 4%. He's acknowledged that, okay, 4% isn't 4% for all Americans. So 4% might be 4% for 3.5% for, for white Americans, 7.5% for Hispanics, 8.5% for Black Americans. So even when the Fed has said, okay, we've done our job, the fact of the matter is, is that within pockets of the country, there's still great economic suffering or hardship. So Powell hinted, said as much in many, in a couple of speeches, and he thought the Fed could change that this time. That's why for a long time they were going to let, they were going to let inflation run hot because part of their experiment was to let inflation get above typical pivot points. So that there's a greater, and you mentioned the word shared, you know, shared prosperity in this case, or shared relief. I don't think the Fed can do that. You know, I don't, I don't, I think, I think the risk award is too, too great for them to try to take that job on. But that was one of the things that Powell wanted to do. And that's one of the things in the future the Fed probably will do as more people are assigned. You know, there's a lot of jobs at the Fed. There's a lot of influence within the Fed. And there have been a lot of jobs and a lot of people have been positioned there who are going to be there for the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, Leo Brainerd was being pushed to be the Fed chair. So I think you're going to get more of this kind of thinking at the Fed, which is going to really make policy a crazy, crazy even in the future. And I think risk crazier. And But in the meantime, you know, we have been in a real life experiment called modern monetary theory. And the theory is, is that the federal government controls the printing press. Why would they ever not print enough money to make all Americans happy? And that's been put to in real life use. We've seen it. We've seen a whole lot of money. And just more recently, this the student loan thing. I just don't, I don't get it. I just, you know, the person who graduates with a regular degree will make on average $3 million. Someone with the, you know, uh, these advanced degrees go to $4 million, And then professional degrees, $5 million. 
Right now, they're 30 years old, making $88,000 a year, but they're on their way to being among the richest people in this country, most comfortable, successful. Their kids will see less violence than other kids. They'll live on average seven years longer than a high school grad, 14 years longer than a high school dropout. They don't need money, but you know they're being told, hey, you'll have this cash, now go out and spend it. So all of these dynamics are difficult, and, and I think they're also short-term in, in, in nature. Uh, and so it's, I don't know if policy is going to adjust. I wish Congress would push back on the Fed, give it a sole mandate of inflation, like all, the, uh, like all these other central banks, instead of more and more jobs. They just have too much power, and I think that's and, and, and too little accountability. I will, I will say, and then I'll bring up some of the audience here that, I remember an interview I've referenced this on prior spaces that Greenspan had done in his book tour for the age of turbulence. And he made a point that in all his years as Fed chair, he never once had a senator or a congressman send him a, a note saying, can you actually raise interest rates? Right. The buy is always <laughs> for cheap capital. And, and this is sort of and I often struggle with this because, you know, oftentimes, especially on FinTwit, it's very easy to blame the Fed. But really, it's Congress. Right. And which means by extension, it's the voter. Right. I agree. I mean, by extension, it's always pox. It's not pox on both political parties. It's pox on the voter. It's always, yeah, throw the bum out except my bum, because my bum brought home a bridge to nowhere. So, yeah, you know, at some point, the public is better just, you know, has to have some introspection about the person in the mirror and stop, either stop complaining or, you know, or, or do something about it. I will say this. <laughs> Greenspan, I don't know if you ever saw any of his testimony in front with um, Waters, Maxine Waters. You know I, I don't know. Oh my God, Michael! I used to just get popcorn, my man. I I would be cracking up. I mean, she put him under the gun, but she would have him. She would be asking him stuff he had no control over. She'd like, yeah, what's up with the food stamp program in my district? He'd be like, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'll find out. So you're right. They get a lot of pressure to be accommodative to everybody, and nobody wants them to be not accommodative. Yeah, the, the surest way to failure is to appease everybody. I think it's kind of the the point. Let's go to a question. Thanks for your kind words. I, you know, I, I'll say this. I'm very excited about Gen Z. Less excited about millennials, but I think that's too big of a basket anyway. I think they made that too broad. You know, you have millennials who are turning 40. You still have some, I think, in their late 20s. So I, I, I don't think that's a good. They should have broken that into two other baskets. But I, I, the reason I say I'm excited about Gen Z is, to your point, I, I feel like they are much more critical thinkers. The only knock that I have from personal observations and just research. And I'm, you know, and I work every single day, every day of the week I work. And so I'm always researching things. And I go down rabbit holes. I just feel that their timeline is a little off. Like, you know, I always joke that the, these Gen Zers, they want to go watch on the first day of work, not the last. But I think they're critically thinking. I think they have ideas. I think they want to succeed. And, you know, the only thing I, uh, again, I quibble with is their timeline. So, I do have a lot of faith in that generation, but everyone else, you know, and I do believe you do have special a class that is a little bit more attuned, to be quite frank with you. You know, I think that, that the kids who attend that school, your school in particular, they have something, there's something really special about them from early on. And I think they want to have an impact on life on beyond their own, on, you know, during their lifetime. I get that. And I've spoken with a lot of them, but, you know, I just, I, I, there is this frustration, but the battle in this country right now is whether or not we want to clear these hurdles that face us. Do we want to do it, and whether you think it's myth or not, by pulling your own self up by your bootstraps, or do you want to do it with the government kind of pulling you over the hurdles? 
And, you know, that's all part of a sales job. You know, both political parties try to sell us on that. I think younger folks are completely, you see whether it's Gallup or some of these other things, YouGov and some of these other polls where just, you know, young Americans, young adults are just fed up with both parties. But there's just so much cash. It's hard to get a real third party going. Um, but we need that, I think. I just think that both sides on uh, both sides are really not that dissimilar, not that dissimilar at the very top on the very elite parts of it. And that's why I don't think things ever truly change that much. And they're always just selling us. You know, when someone, for instance, says, you know, we pulled X amount of people over the poverty line, you ever stop and say, well, what, what does that really mean? So for a family of four, I think the poverty line is twenty six thousand four hundred bucks. So theoretically, if the family was has had an annual income of twenty five thousand and now it's twenty seven thousand, you can brag that you pulled them over the poverty line, but you didn't do a damn thing that helped them. Really, they're still living in the same squalor, and they still have a, and their children are still in the same hopeless situation, probably still getting the same crummy education. So I'm hopeful. I'm very, very, very hopeful for the Gen Z crowd. I am. I love what I'm seeing from them, but I just hope they can avoid all of the hurdles out there that are traps, whether, you know, the bitterness out there that's now spread through social media as well as traditional media and just find a way to be unique. Right now, I feel like they're going to be very unique and I think they're going to be comparable. They could be comparable to the greatest generation. And I hope so. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I will say real quick, the, the other challenge that you hit on is the time frame, right? That the younger generation thinks that things will happen faster than reason would dictate. But a lot of that has to do with distractions, right? And attention spans, which increasingly are getting shorter. It seems to me that, you know, Charles, that's a real problem to address real structural issues, because if you don't have the fortitude to stick to a problem to solve it, then what's the point? Well, and and you started off talking about the volatility in this market. It's just a backdrop, you know. If you you can't get the you can't get the the ten bagger if you don't go through a few big time dips and challenges, right? You know, it's it's. And I just did a slideshow for my subscribers, and I used Parker Hannifin as an example. The stock is up seven hundred eighty percent since two thousand and one. Not a bad return, but there were times when you know the stock made major pullbacks. So. You know, and and listen, my I have my own. My son is twenty five years old. He just got out of university in January, and he, you know, he's going for the home runs. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to get him to to work for me. He worked for me every summer until he went to college. He went to school in London, but you know, he wants to art galleries, negotiating the sale of a Monet. You know, he's like he's swinging for the fences, which is a beautiful thing. But I was simultaneously he would do something on this on this in, in terms of grinding it. I think that experience of grinding it, grinding it taking a setback and grinding it, grinding it, you know, when like, like investors talk about diamond hands, you know, a diamond becomes a diamond over a long period of time through a tremendous amount of pressure. And so, yeah, we want them all, we want to be diamond hands in every aspect of our lives, but to get the process of it is tough. It's the heat that there's a lot of heat, a lot of setbacks, a tremendous amount of pressure. 
At the end, you got something amazing, powerful, the strongest substance on earth, but to get there is not easy. And I don't know that we have enough people talking to the kids about that at an early enough age. Although, you know, a lot of it's just going to have to be learned the hard way. Yeah, it's that it's that grit that's missing. Let's go to. Well, first of all, congratulations, Rob. And I, I do think it's amazing. I really, really do. I've got a few people that I'm mentoring ages. The ages go from nine to twenty nine right now. And they all want to be entrepreneurs. They're all making moves and they're all trying to do things. I was on the board of a charter school in the South Bronx for a long time. I left it. It was a little frustrating, you know, and I've been trying to do some other things and get involved in this with some other charter schools and some STEM projects. And I'm working with a company out of uh, London that makes these amazing educational things for STEM. I think the mentorship is just absolutely amazing. It really is. It's really a difference maker. When my parents divorced and we moved to New York and it was like, you know, I didn't have a father. I would speak to my dad occasionally on the phone, but not that much. You know, of course, there was no social media and all that kind of stuff. So we were on our own. And to this day, there's been a, there were a few pivotal people who just touched my life. You know, my 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 teacher in, in junior high who who told me I had great art skills and 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 helped me apply for one of the best art schools in the world, high school. Calvin Klein and a whole bunch of other great artists went there. There was a guy in my first neighborhood. And this is where I first learned, I talked about culture shock. One of the first things I learned when I moved to New York was about leadership. In the military, leadership was all about rank, right? I mean, you'd have to stop and salute a general's car if it went by, whether he was in it or not, which is okay. But I learned about hands-on leadership. And ironically, I learned it two ways, Rob. There was one kid named Tata. He was a little dude, but he struck fear in the hearts of everyone. I mean, he made, and he made these other kids do anything. Like, you know, he was a real serious thug. But his leadership skills were mind-boggling. And there was another guy, there was a, a, a building, they turned it into a, like a, a meeting center, and they would mentor people. It's called Operation Helping Hand, and the guy there was named Brother John. And so let's say, you know, kids had a fight. Like, I never had fights like those. Like, the fights I had growing up on Army bases, you'd fight for maybe five minutes, and then you'd be friends about 10 minutes later. I, you know, fights in Harlem when I was going over to the death, right? You really tried to kill someone. You had to, no matter what, the longest fight, I had a fight one time that lasted 50 minutes and covered three blocks. I just never knew the kind of, it was tough. So to make sure that that didn't happen, Brother John would try to defuse things and he would take everyone in the back and have him put on, you know, the two guys put on boxing gloves, box it out a little bit. And he was just amazing. Everyone looked up to him. And the reason that, that these two stories stand out to me is that they both were killed or died. Tata either fell off a building or was pushed off a building. And Brother John was murdered or killed while he was trying to break up a fight. But the, and I just bring it up because mentorship, leadership, hands on. I mean, there's certain people that need that. You know, books can tell you so much. A TikTok video can t- tell you so much. They have someone who's made it. And there's a certain aspect to it also that they appreciate that you took the time out to do it. So I love what you're doing on the mentorship side. I think it's a critical, I think it's so critical to turning around this country. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Let me just reset the room. Everyone here, please make sure you follow Charles and obviously uh, engage with him. As you can tell, very thoughtful, will have a lot of personal and professional experience. It's interesting because all those things you said are true in terms of, you know, seeing more of these success stories. But, you know, we also, through all of these different mediums, also see more of the other side, like the things I'm talking about. You know, sometimes I, I walk around, especially through the halls of Fox, and 
when I'm hearing people talk about certain things they saw, like, did you see what happened in that video in the Bronx? And a lot of times for a lot of people, it feels like they think this is just now happening. No, the cameras are just installed, but it's been happening for several decades. And so people are also reminded of, of all the difficulties and uh, some of the harsh realities of life as well. So I, I think it's really great that that the folks can keep stay positive through all of that, you know, and, and still think and want to do things. You, know, you mentioned something really interesting, too, on the um, having access to information. In the stock market, there's this thing called the um, the efficiency. There's a notion of efficiency that the market is, is is efficient, and the premise is is that all the information is out there, and the market knows it, so the market is always priced properly. My friend Ben Stein is a big proponent of this. We've had so many arguments over it. This is where I think even that notion of, 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 of the efficiency factor, and then even what you were talking about in terms of having all this information at your fingertips, it's out there, but who's reading it? So, you know. Wait, which, by the way, and that goes, but that goes back to distractions, right? It's, it, that, I think that you're hitting on something which is really important. It's, it's hard to have an efficient market when there's so much information and then not much attention span to actually act on it. <laughs> right, right. So it's out there. How do we, how do we drill, get, you know, act? You know, like I always find myself, I'll read an article and I, I may see a term or a phrase I never heard before. Then I'll Google that and then I'll see, oh, some guy made it up in 1838. So then I Google him. Then I find out, oh, man, his dad was, you know, whatever, whatever. Then I Google that and then I find out his father's involved in a conflict I never heard before. I Google that and you read in the source of that. I mean, so the rabbit hole is just. It, you can just keep drilling down and down if you're inquisitive enough and, and curious enough. And to your point, you better not be distracted because, you know, one distraction and you'll forget about that threat. So I, I don't know how how we fight against that as in the terms of when I say we, people who really care and want to see, you know, genuine success, you know, for, you know, not not this notion of let's rip the nation apart. But how do we how do we position younger generations so that they can fend for themselves and, and achieve what they want to achieve in life? The, the biggest, loudest platforms always have an ulterior motive, ulterior agenda, and that's to keep power. Usually, it's the same agenda. They want power. Just, it's just, you know, what they would do with it is different. So I'm not sure how to how to cut out the distractions. You know, I don't have a TikTok account, but I have a couple of friends who do. You know, but, you know, but thought, you know how to dance. Come on, Charles. You can <laughs> dance on TikTok. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Although I don't know the latest stuff. I'm not sure I can wobble or whatever the hell that is, but... You know, it's so funny because I have one buddy I and mean, he's like 55 years old. I don't know if he's working. I mean, he does work. He's in construction, but he, he, does, he sends me like 20 TikTok videos a day. And every now and then I'll click one on. Next thing I know, I'm on this damn TikTok thing and 15 minutes have gone by. I'm like, oh, shit, let me get off this before it's too late. <laughs> so, so I'm afraid. I mean, the, the, the distractions are real. I don't know how to get around them, except, except never to, to subscribe to them. That's, that's a fair point. Let's go to. You're right. I mean, it's, um, you know, I got to tell you, trying to get my show to where it is now was hell. <laughs> okay. I mean, pure hell. You know, my show initially was on at six o'clock and, you know, we were new. We weren't really doing much in the numbers against CNBC. And then the election came around. And, uh, you know, we, we we sort of went the political route. And Lou Dobbs, he probably, you know, he was a veteran, wily veteran. He made CNN a big success. He's a big part of that. He saw something. He really gl- he grabbed it with the, with the rise of Trump and the rise of populism. 
And our network started getting a lot of viewers and we started beating CNBC. And, you know, for me, I love politics. I love history. I love Nate. I love a lot of things, but I love the market more first and foremost. And, I, and my greatest my greatest personal goal is to help people. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.